Morning, everyone. Thank you, Andy. At the end of Shakespeare's 94th sonnet, we find this great line, Lilies that fester smell far worse than weeds. And it's an interesting thought, and in certain ways, and I'll explain why in due course, but in certain ways, festering lilies describes the people of God about 750 years before Jesus. At a point in their history, whenever Amos the prophet did speak so powerfully and so directly into their situation and into their lives. But just in case you're tempted to sort of switch off or make the mistake of distancing yourself from Amos's message or from what we're about to hear because of the time gap that exists between then and now, please remember that the Old Testament prophets spoke from the perspective of eternity. In other words, there's no sell-by or best-before-date stamped on their message. It keeps giving and keeps giving. And so what Amos and the others said was not only relevant to their context and their age, but it's also relevant to us here now, South Belfast, 2011. So if you have a Bible, can I invite you to turn to the book of Amos? It's page 916 in the Pew Bibles. It would be very helpful if you could see a copy of God's Word as we work our way through this. Now, as Andy said earlier, Amos is one of the so-called minor prophets, which at so many levels is a rubbish phrase. It's rubbish. Because there's a real danger of thinking he's a lightweight that he's the sort of Coke Coors light version of the major prophets like Isaiah or Jeremiah, and nothing could be further from the truth. The phrase minor does not refer to content. It simply refers to length. And so although they, that is the 12 minor minor prophets, are short, I mean some of them are only one chapter long, there's no reduction in potency, or content. They are not less important. So if let's read from the, the very first chapter in the first verse. The words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa, what he saw concerning Israel. Now just a couple of introductory comments. The first is obvious. Amos appears to be a shepherd as opposed to a prophet. But if you flick over to chapter 7... And look at verse 14. Here's Amos' personal call. I was neither a prophet nor a prophet's son, he says. But I was a shepherd. And I also took care of sycamore fig trees. But the Lord took me from tending the flock and said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. So, this local businessman has been called by God to speak God-infused words to Israel. And he's clear on his divine mandate, and he's being obedient and faithful to it. Second comment relates to geography. Amos is from Tekoa, that's Judah, southern Judah. But his message is for Israel. So effectively, he is a cross-border prophet. Verse 2. He said, so here goes, the Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. 
Now, I'm not sure how you imagine God. How you perceive God. Or what usually comes to mind when you think of God. But this picture, this language, this description is potentially shocking. Or at least a little unnerving. And as the Israelites listened to Amos' opening words, surely they sensed trouble. This imagery must have grabbed their attention as it should ours. Any thoughts of a domesticated, tame, quiet, safe God are challenged. They're shattered. They're blown out of the water. God roars. God thunders. And so they'd better and we'd better sit up and take notice and listen carefully. And what follows, as you can see from verse 3, is a declaration of judgment. God as judge is not a popular idea or concept today. It never has been. It never will be. The thought of the Lord is my shepherd, well, that's comforting. The thought of the Lord is my ferocious lion, well, that's for many people unpalatable. That's just unthinkable. And yet, that is God. That is our God. The lion has roared. Who will not fear, says Amos a little later on. And when or if we dilute or reduce or attempt to deny this dimension of God's character, we actually are guilty of creating a false God. And the minute we do that, we're in dire straits. And yet it's happening all around us. God is the judge of all the earth, says Genesis 18.25. And via the prophet Amos, he's about to pronounce judgment on numerous people. But notice from verse 3, it starts with Israel's neighbours. And so though this arresting picture of a roaring, thundering God has grabbed their attention, there must have been a sense of relief as Amos starts speaking about Damascus and Gaza in verse 6 and Tyre in verse 9 and Edom in verse 11 and Ammon in verse 13 and Moab in verse 1 of chapter 2. Those are the weeds, so to speak. They're out there. They're the enemies. They're the bad guys. And as they hear about God sending fire on all these people, there could have been a smug, Amen, Lord, uttered under their breath. But in verse 4 of chapter 2, this starts getting far too close for comfort. For these three sins of where Judah were right next door now. Even for four, which incidentally is a phrase that keeps meaning the repeated sinful attitudes, actions and behaviour of people. For these three sins of Judah, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath, says God. This is getting up close and personal. And then the inconceivable happens. Amos doesn't shut up. He doesn't stop talking. The words keep coming. The lion advances. Chapter 2, verse 6. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Israel. 
They, the people of God, have lost their way. They've failed to live in the light. They've kept making these crazy spiritual life-threatening choices. They are festering lilies. And rather than me getting in the way of the word of God, let me just allow God's word the space to speak. So, let's stand as we read from verses 6 to 16 of chapter 2. This is what the Lord says, For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. They sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as upon the dust of the ground. They deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken and pledged. In the house of their God they drink wine taken as vines. I destroyed the Amorite before them, though he was as tall as the cedars and strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots below. I brought you out of Egypt. I led you for 40 years in the desert to give you the land of the Amorites. I also raised up prophets from among your sons and Nazarites from among your young men. Is this not true, people of Israel, declares the Lord? But what did you do? You made the Nazarites drink wine and you commanded the prophets not to prophesy. Now then, I will crush you. As a cart crushes when loaded with grain. The swift will not escape. The warrior will not save his life. The archer will not stand his ground. The fleet-footed soldier will not get away. And the horseman will not save his life. Even the bravest warriors will flee naked on that day, declares the Lord. Grab a seat. Those are chilling words. And what God declares in verse 13 must have sent a shiver down their spines. I will crush you. And as the word of God continues, there is no let up in the stark language. In fact, at times it borders on downright offensive. I mean, whenever you call certain women cows, it's clearly no holes barred. You're not that worried about what other people think. There's no such thing as political correctness here. Chapter 4, verse 1. Hear the word, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria, you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy and say to your husbands, bring us some drink. And in terms of the severity of the judgment, the picture painted by verse 3 of chapter 4 is more than a little disturbing. This time, or that time, will surely come when you will be taken away with hooks, the last of you with fish hooks. It's graphic imagery. God as judge and his inevitable judgment are realities you must not take lightly or ever become flippant about. And as Amos spoke, you can only imagine how the people were processing this message. How do we process it? How are you reacting to this this morning? How do you reflect on the impending judgment of God? But the big question and surely the pressing question in everyone's mind, ours included, is this. Why? Like what have they done? Or not done? What has awakened the lion? As we continue to tease this out a bit further, please bear in mind that this is one sermon based on nine chapters. (laughs) This is one sermon on an entire book. So therefore I can't say or deal with everything. I can only cover so much or so little. 
But as you read these chapters, and can I encourage you to read all nine in one sitting this afternoon, or at least some stage of this week. And as you engage with this, you will find some very clear reasons why God reacts like this. You'll discover the reasons for God's coming judgment and the striking contemporary relevance of this message and these words is incredible. Honestly incredible. And the first reason comes through quite explicitly in chapter 4. In a phrase that's repeated time and time again, yet you have not returned to me. It's there in verses 5, verses 6, 8, 9, 10, 11. Despite who God is and all that God has done to stress the danger of their situation, to get their attention, to arrest their thinking and their decline before it was too late, they chose to ignore God's ways. His values, his framework for life in all its wholeness. And through famine and drought and locusts and plagues and war, God had screamed for their attention. It's all there. Yet they kept their distance. They ignored God. They kept walking further and further away from him in their hearts. And unlike the prodigal, for example, they didn't return. And now they are staring a ferocious lion squarely in the face. And therefore, how sobering are these slightly over-familiar and often misused words? Prepare to meet thy God. There's no longer an option, it would seem, to ignore God and do their own thing. There's no longer time to stall the inevitable. Judgment was coming. And as we know from the unfolding story, from what happens next, God's judgment is unleashed as the Assyrians wreak havoc in their lives and in their land. So where does that leave us? Or at least, what does that force us to consider seriously? I mean, has God's judgment been and gone? Is he no longer the judge of all the earth? Well, not according to the rest of the big story. The rest of scripture, as a relatively well-known New Testament verse, makes strikingly clear. And just as each person is destined to die once... And after that comes judgment. So it would appear that it awaits all of us. One out of one people die. Therefore, one out of one people will face judgment. And so the question for you and I this morning is this. Are we prepared to meet our God? God has done so much to get our attention. God has gone to extreme lengths. This is just one example. Extreme lengths. But where are we this morning? Are we distant or are we close? Are we far off or are we right there? The Israelites had not returned. And therefore their situation was hopeless. Or was it? A second reason for the weight of Amos' message from God concerned their worship. Which could only be described as false meaningless and heartless and God can see right through it you see even though they were sinning hand over fist left right and centre they were still engaging in religious ritual 
they were still, if you like, showing up at church, apparently ticking all the right boxes, sacrificing, tithing, observing the appropriate feast, singing the songs, gathering in their assemblies. But all they were doing was going through the emotions. This was external worship at its most shocking. On the surface all appeared okay, but there was a mix-it-up mentality, an almost dualistic approach to life. Get the Sunday go-to-church stuff done and then live as you like the rest of the week type thinking. And God, and this is strong, hated it. Chapter 5, 21. He starts, I hate, and then it's almost as if one of the things I say to my kids is, hey, listen, hate's a strong word. So then God checks back, I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Their worship was a sham. It was packed with pretense. It might have flowed from their lips and their wallets and their weekly schedules, but it was not inside-out worship. It didn't come from, it didn't flow from, it didn't explode from passionate hearts. It might have looked good, it might have even sounded good, but when you stripped it all back, there was nothing of substance left. It was totally empty. And although others might have been fooled and taken in, even impressed, God wasn't. You see, in the words of a song we sometimes sing here at Windsor, God searches much deeper within. Through the way things appear, he's looking into our hearts. The question is, what does he find as he looks into mine this morning? Because I can't fool you. It's really easy to do that when you have a job like this. And God couldn't stomach the Israelites' worship. Because it was so insincere and so unreal that it was sickening. And obviously, and you don't need me to labor the point, but we can sing all the songs we want. Great songs, beautiful songs. We can attend as many meetings and conferences as we like. We can give, we can offer, we can do all that we like. But you see, without a heart after God, an obedient heart, a heart that's willing to confess sin, a heart that is open to transformation by a holy God, then there's a real danger of rank hypocrisy. And for the Israelites, God had become an insignificant other. A passing interest, an add-on to life as opposed to central. And therefore, he had become somewhat irrelevant and diminished. And when the people of God allow that to persist and fester, then stinking lilies is not a bad description. I know this is heavy this morning. Tonight's much later. And in a sense, and I'm going to say this tonight, you kind of need to come to both services today to get the whole story. But if you can't come tonight, then it's a part of. But it's a good part. So false worship was another reason for God's strong reaction. The final reason I want to highlight brings out another powerful challenge. And by the way, I'm not suggesting that not returning to God or false worship And this third reason that I'm about to give are the only ones. You may discern more as you read the book this afternoon. Plus, I also think it's worth saying that each of these reasons flow into and impact each other. 
So unless you return to God, then your worship probably will be false. But the third reason, and lots of you have been wondering, well, when is he going to mention this, considering what you already know about Amos and what Andy has already shared? The third reason for God's strong words was because of his people's appalling lack of compassion and social justice. Specifically concerning the poor and the marginalized and the downcast and the needy. And look at or listen to some of these damning phrases when referring to the people of God. You sell the needy for a pair of sandals. You trample on the heads of the poor. You oppress the poor and you crush the needy. You who trample the needy and do away with the poor of your land. And you know what's particularly shocking about this? The Israelites were rich. They have winter and summer houses according to chapter 3 verse 15. They live in houses adorned with ivory. They lie in beds packed with the stuff. They occupy mansions. They have lush vineyards. They dine on choice lambs. They drink bowlfuls of wine. Now this isn't and never should be a cheap dig at people who are well off. Or who have a second house. It's not what this is about. The problem is not that they were rich. Money and having it is not the issue. The problem is they were selfish. The problem is they ignored the poor. In fact, it was worse than that. They took advantage of the poor. They were indifferent towards the poor. And anyone who knows anything of God's word and God's heart knows that anybody who claims to belong to God cannot live like that. It's nonsense. And based on the Torah, the Israelites would have known their responsibility towards the poor in their midst. And based on God's word, I know mine. And God has blessed us materially and financially, and that's brilliant. The challenge in belonging to the God of the poor is to have a heart for the poor. To take seriously the approximately 2,000 verses in Scripture that talk about caring for the poor. There are endless sermons that need to be preached on this subject. But for now, the question that each of us must face and must confront as we engage with this prophecy is, how are we responding to the poor in our midst? In our world? How? The Israelites were walking all over them. And that's the words of Scripture. You trample, says Amos, you trample on them. And therefore, it's no wonder God's offended by their pious worship and their affluent lifestyles. And as we reflect on this and make connections and allow the prophetic word to continue speaking into our lives, these words from another song we sing here at Windsor seem appropriate. God of the poor, friend of the weak, give us compassion, we pray. Melt our cold hearts, let tears fall like rain. Come change our love from a spark to a flame. So what is our response to all of this? What was God looking for? What was God longing for and still is today? Is it all doom and gloom? Are there no pointers, no guidance offered, no alternative or better ways to live shared in these chapters? 
Well, thankfully, there are, although sadly, it would seem very few of the Israelites got it. Flick back to chapter 5, verse 4. This is what the Lord says to the house of Israel. Seek me and live. Now that doesn't mean that God was or is hiding. God isn't playing and never has played an elaborate cosmic game of hide and seek. To seek God means to go after God, to pursue God, to engage with God, to worship God. And as we all know from elsewhere in scripture, you will, we will seek God and find God when you search for him with all your heart. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. Church, let's pursue God from and with the core of our beings. Because then we will constantly return to him. Then we will worship him with integrity and sincerity. Then we will have a heart for others, including the poor. But it doesn't quite stop there. And as I say, this is obviously all interconnected. Look down at verse 14. We are to seek good, not evil. Verse 15, hate evil, love good. And then down to verse 24. Brilliant. We are to let justice rule on like a river and righteousness like a never-failing stream. And that is my prayer for us Windsor Baptist. That we will be a people, that we will be a church that seeks God, yes, that seeks good, definitely. But we will also be a church and a people that cares about social justice and right living. Because let's be clear about this. Our future depends on it. Our future depends on it. There is so much more that could or should be said. And one of the challenges, and I know it's one of the slight frustrations some had with this series, this journey right through the whole Bible in a year, is that we kind of skim stuff. But one final comment. I said earlier, I wonder how the people processed this. Well, according to the end of chapter 7, we find the reaction of one person. And his name is Amaziah. And he's one of the spiritual leaders, one of the spiritual elite. And he tells Amos exactly what he thinks. And he's a priest, and so we may be speaking on behalf of the people I don't know. Get out, you seer. Go back to the land of Judah. Earn your bread there. Do your prophesying there. Don't prophesy anymore at Bethel. And I suppose for me, that just captures the decision we all face this morning. Do we seek God and seek good and seek justice and seek righteousness? Or do we send the prophetic word packing? I mean, that's your choice. That's your call. But you see, as we make that choice, let's not ignore the lion's roar.